Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. About six months ago, my gosh, has it already been six months, I joined the Australian National University to establish the Tech Policy Design Centre. We've launched this podcast because we want to encourage more people to get involved in discussions about how technology is shaping our lives. So my guest today is Justin Warren. Justin is the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia. He's the managing director of tech consulting firm Pivot9. He's an IT veteran of over 20 years. He's worked for Aussie companies like Suncorp, Telstra, Australia Post, as well as a number of Silicon Valley startups. Uh, and according to your Twitter bio, which I do love, Justin, uh, you are a hexacon enthusiast, an FOI enthusiast, a cheese noticer, digital rights advocate, and probably not a vampire. So welcome to the pod. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. So Justin, we traditionally open the pod by asking people to share a story about um, their first experience with technology. We thought this time we might um, swatch, sweep that up a little bit and instead ask you uh, to share an experience of the first time that you engaged with technology and it blew your mind that you thought, wow, this is something that has the potential to change the world. Um, I give this podcast a little bit of a warning. Uh, I clearly was in a philosophical mood when I wrote the, <laughs> wrote the questions for you, but I feel like you can rise to the challenge, Justin. Sure. So over to you. Yeah, I don't know about changing the world so much. Um, that feels a little bit too lofty. I think I, I always thought computers were kind of neat. Um, I was fortunate enough when I was in primary school, my father bought an Apple IIe, I think it was. Um, no, an Apple II Plus, um, which he immediately upgraded and put an extra, I think it was 4K of RAM in it back in those days. But you could program it in basic and being able to get the computer to do things, um, I found that magical. It, it was, I don't know, being able to do things with a device that wasn't, it was like Lego but with your mind. Mm. Um, and that's probably what keeps bringing me back to computers even now um, after 25 years of intense frustration at trying to get them to do things. And unlike Lego, well, I suppose it's a bit like Lego. It, it just never seems to quite go together the way you want it and flies apart at the slightest provocation. So they're incredibly frustrating, but also still kind of magical when they do actually work. That brings to mind an experience that I had. I, I am not a coder, but I have learned basic coding. Um, so Python and one of the first exercises you do when you're doing that is print screen and making making the print happen and getting the coding behind and the sense of satisfaction when it works, the frustration when it doesn't, but the satisfaction when it actually does is something that you just don't get in a policy field because it's, you know, things can be you know so amorphous, um, whereas with coding it's either working or it's not. So, yes, that brings to mind that experience. Mm. So speaking of uh, multiple years of, of frustrations and adventure, um, you have been chair of uh, EFA, so Electronic Frontiers Australia, for some time, and but you've been involved with it since 2001. Can you tell us a little bit about who EFA is? And I think some listeners may be familiar with Electronic Frontiers Foundation, which I've heard described as your cousin in the US. So if you can uh, speak a little to that as well, that would be useful. Yeah, cousin in the US is is pretty accurate. We we came into being roughly the same time back in the sort of mid to late nineties. Yeah, so EFA was founded in nineteen ninety four. We like to think of it as, as promoting and protecting human rights in a digital context. That's a little bit academic and, and fluffy, but it's that digital rights are human rights. It's things like um, privacy, um, being able to express yourself, being able to interact with the world around you, and have that done respectfully both respecting yourself and respect from others that the fact that this is happening in a computer it kind of isn't really that special um and yet the computer does 
and the internet more broadly, does change the way some of these rights get expressed. So there is a, a kind of an important dimension there that needs to be, it needs some expertise. Um, you need to understand how technology works and how the internet and computers work in order to properly understand how does speech work on the internet? What does freedom of speech actually mean? Is trolling freedom? Is it not? And how do you address that as, as a policymaker? Looking since 2001, when you first joined EFA, mm. how have the frontiers of digital rights, if you like, moved since 2001? And what was your motivation personally of getting involved in EFA? And I, I say that because one of the key objectives of this podcast is to encourage more people to get involved in these discussions and not to see them as sort of an esoteric tech discussion, but as something that is central and fundamental to all of our lives. And um, so it's always interesting to hear what motivated other people to, to take up the mantle, so to speak. So I got involved because of privacy and what was happening in 2001, as, as some people might remember, there was a bit of an event in the United States. And I, as I was recently reminded since that, since then in the last 20, 21, years, 21 years, we've passed 124 different pieces of legislation that affect the cybers. So my motivation then was protecting wow. my who did that count? Oh, the, the count came from uh, the Richardson Review of the ah, of, of Australia's yep. Surveillance mm -hmm. Legal Framework. I'd have to mm -hmm. I have to look at the exact name. That's of a fairly thing. credible source, though. Yeah, it's it's not bad. It's a good read. Um, it's not a light read, but it it's worth reading. Yes. So we've done a lot since then, and back then there were um, changes afoot that I thought were uh, overreactionary. I think that a lot of what happened in the aftermath of the events of September 11, 2001, went too far because it was a knee-jerk reaction to a sudden change. It was very threatening for a bunch of people and politicians doing what they often do. There's something must be done. This is something, therefore this must be done. So that's why I got involved in, in EFA specifically because I mean, I'd been involved with the internet since its very early days in Australia. Um, I'd, for me anyway, getting involved in sort of late high school to, to university, it was very much part of my life. It was a, an important thing and I wanted to see it protected. And I was concerned that some of the uh, moves that were being made were broadly ignorant of how the technology worked and the nuances that needed to be taken into account because of this rush to do something all of a sudden. And I thought that was incredibly dangerous for Australia's future as a, as, a, as a nation that's connected to the rest of the, the world through the internet. We're a long way away from everywhere physically, but the internet makes the world much, much closer. So if we were able to use technology really well, that would be great for our nation. We wouldn't have to get on aeroplanes and, and fly around the world quite, quite so much or export things by putting it on a boat. We could export things by just sending it down the wires. And unfortunately, well, both fortunately and unfortunately, I think um, a lot of the promise has actually came about, but a lot of the dangers that EFA was calling out back then have in fact come true. And when you say the dangers, can you drill down a little bit more on that in terms of what some key dangers or maybe scope creep potentially, I don't want to put words in your mouth, <laughs> that you are focused on looking back from that time in 2001 that you're now saying, ah, not we told you so, but the concern was a valid concern that we had then. Well, we did tell you so. I will say. <laughs> you said um, it, not me. Yeah. Um, look, the, the first rule of Cassandra Club is that no one will believe that you're a member of Cassandra Club. It is incredibly frustrating when you have experience in this field and lay out very clearly, this is what will happen if you do this, and then it comes true, and yet somehow that doesn't provide any additional credibility, while other people who have made outrageous claims that have never come true continue to be listened to as if they're serious policymakers. Hmm. that's not a recipe for success. Hmm. So, I mean, some of the issues we had around privacy in particular. So we are now living in a world where our everyday activities are under constant close surveillance by people who want to put more ads in front of our face and sell us crap we don't need. 
we didn't have to build that. We warned about how governments will co-opt that capability that is created by private industry because authoritarians loved love surveillance. And we have seen that that came true. Some of the the statements that were made, even I sort of pinch myself from time to time and think, well, this was just a raging conspiracy theory type idea that the word echelon, um, that a foreign nation surveillance agency would be listening into everybody's phone calls all the time. Well, that's, that's not going to happen. And turns out, yeah, it, it not only was going to happen, it has happened. And I continue to be a bit surprised, I suppose, that we learned that this was true and everyone kind of just shrugged and we've learned to live with it, except when we don't. Mm. And I think that there's a, there's a reckoning that is starting to build momentum is what I'm seeing now is that it's, it's gone too far. It, it's starting to impact people's lives in very concrete ways and enough of people's lives that they are starting to push back quite strongly. Mm. And do you think it's because people didn't have an appreciation of that concrete impact on their lives? Is that why we've allowed this to happen? Um, you talked then sort of about the antipathy that people had. Is it, is it, do you think it's because it was seen as this tech issue and the link between the technology and shaping our lives uh, hadn't been made quite so forcefully and maybe it is more now? Or what do you think is causing that, that uh, raise, rise in awareness now? Partly it's, it's really abstract. Hmm. I'd say actually there's, there's three parts to it. So one part is that the notion of rights is a bit abstract. Um, so hmm. people don't really appreciate it because it's, it's not concrete, it's not right in front of your face. It's a little bit hard to conceptualise, you know, how does lack of privacy impact me? You have to mm. provide a concrete example of it of like, well, the cops can see your nudes on your phone whenever they like, or they can leak your address to your ex-husband that you're trying to flee from because they were abusive. You know, if you put it in concrete terms, then people can understand it. And like most things that affect humans, unless it directly affects us, we kind of don't care that much because it's happening to somebody else. If it's not me or my direct family, shrug. The Jenny and the kids test. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. A very big part of it is that a lot of this happened sneakily. It happened quietly. It happened in the shadows. It was very deliberately hidden from people. And people with power, um, not just governments and agencies, but also corporations, have lied about what they were doing. They have obfuscated. They have put this in place in the full knowledge that if they were upfront about what they were doing, people wouldn't like it. And digital surveillance is particularly sneaky because it happens without it being right in front of you on these, you know, it's, it's happening in the background. It's like a phone tap that happens at the telephone exchange. You don't see it or hear it happening. If the government sent a person around in a scary uniform to bash down your front door and install a surveillance camera in your bedroom, people would be very concerned. But if you just use a bit of software and turn on the microphone in everybody's mobile phone that they carry around with them that's connected to the internet and is GPS connected and has a phone and a camera and use that, turn that into a surveillance device, you could do that quietly and never tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with the, the further impact, which is the statistics. When you do it once to one person in a very dramatic way, people pay attention to that. But when it's a statistic, when it's something that just happens to millions and millions of people constantly as a system, people get a bit numb to that. It's, it's hard to wrap your brain around, which is why you know, whenever we, we do you know, newspaper reporting and stuff, it's always the salient example of one particular family or the hero image of, the heroic girl who saves their teddy bear from the fire. When you talk about a global pandemic in terms of millions of people dead over two years, no one cares. Well, mm. they care, but it's abstract. Mm. What can I do about millions of deaths? Whereas when you talk about the impact on one individual person of, well, you wash your hands and put a mask on your face, get vaccinated, that's a different story. 
Mm. I I love that explanation. So it's it's the sort of uh, the nature of rights, the sneaky approach to use your words, and then the statistics. Just to push back a little bit on the sneaky approach, because I know there'll be listeners to this podcast who would pillory me if I don't. On the sneaky point, government has put out submissions. They have, you know, this is legislative powers. These are powers that are, that exist and are public powers. On the industry side, you know, they have these long disclosures and and statements that do exist. So is it the lack of meaningful uh, visibility on these things rather than secrecy? Or are you actually concerned that it is being done in a uh, deliberately secretive way? It's a bit of everything. Hmm. So some of it is done about board and some of it isn't. Um, again, in the Richardson report, there are um, he, he states that there are members of some of our surveillance agencies that fundamentally don't understand the need for governance and protection against misuse of those powers. Mm. That's alarming. Very there alarming. Is, there is a misunderstanding and I would, in fact, on a lot of the legislation, there have been misrepresentations of what it means. Um, the famous example of Australia's favourite Attorney General, Mr George Brandis QC, struggling to explain the concept of metadata. Mm -hmm. The notion that it was put to us that we will not actually access this data without an appropriate warrant and then we find out in a Commonwealth Ombudsman report that no, actually, not only did the AFP access journalists' metadata, they also accessed thousands of citizens' data without appropriate authorization. Now, that's a systemic failure. I don't think that that was necessarily done deliberately by all of the officers failing to obey the law, but that's exactly the problem. So for those thousands of people whose privacy was invaded, did they get told? Are they able to take action individually to protect themselves against any impact that that loss of privacy might have had? No. They, so that is secretive. Many of these powers are deliberately used in secret. We are only finding out now at great expense about ASIS's activities in spying on a foreign nation on behalf of a fossil fuel company, which it could be loosely described as in the national interest, but really? We've, we've had an instance of a person who was sent to jail based on secret evidence, tried in secret, jailed in secret, and we only found out after the fact. The, these are events that have occurred. Mm. So this isn't some sort of raging fever dream that I'm making stuff up that will never happen. It's like, unfortunately, we as a nation need to confront that not only are these risks happening right now, we've done all of these things that we said that we would never do. And I think I, I've heard you speak before, Justin, about considering how the tool could be misused or abused when we're giving a tool. Uh, and I think from my experience, that's something that we don't do enough to make sure that we have those protections built in, but also what happens if and when it is misused, what are the consequences and and how, what are the remedies and review that happens through that process, which is, of course, uh, very important. What about if we look at the question of what what is at stake now? So we've looked a little bit historically. What do you think is at stake now that is on the table as something that we have the ability to protect and preserve in the next, say, five to 10 years that if we don't act, we potentially have the risk of losing? At the risk of hyperbole? I did say it was philosophical and yes. I have given that warning, so it's okay. At the risk of sounding hyperbolic, liberal democracy. Surveillance powers, again, Richardson calls this out, a lot of the surveillance powers that are used are the same ones that get used in authoritarian states by dictatorships and you know, fascist regimes. We as a nation, I think, need to be very careful about how far down that path we are willing to go, and I think we need to think about it in advance. We need to define what it is to be a liberal democracy so that when we have when we look overseas to foreign nations who are putting in place mass surveillance of their own citizens, facial recognition of everyone to detect ne'er-do-wells, which is routinely used against opponents of the state, be they dissidents, be they transgender people, be they you know, people of alternate lifestyles, people with funny-looking hair, the wrong colour skin, 
the incorrect race. These are things that happen today. And the technologies that we're talking about deploying here in Australia are the same ones that are used in those nations and indeed, in some cases, here in Australia. Um, we already have horrendous race relations in Australia and it's not something that we like to talk about or, or to deal with. We already have surveillance technologies that are deployed against the poor that are not deployed against the rich. So we need to, I think, wrestle with the question of what kind of country does Australia want to be mm. and do it deliberately rather than accidentally wake up in five to ten years to find out that not only are our close members of Five Eyes fascist organisations, uh, fascist nations, but we've decided to become one too. Mm. And it, it is alarming that, you know, I listen to myself saying this and I'm going, what? Surely not. You know, but it can happen here as, as we know from, from history. And one of my favourite quotes is from Heinlein. It's like the, the fact that men don't learn very much from the lessons of history is one of the greatest lessons that history has to teach. So it would be nice for us to actually learn from history rather than just running a, a full repeat of the 20th century, only this time as a speed run. Yeah, and I think when you look at the prevalence at the moment of people saying we need to protect liberal democracy, the fact we're having the US holding a summit for democracy, the increasing amount of references about we need to protect our values, but very rarely are they actually defined. And if you mm. press down and ask people to say, well, what are the characteristics of a liberal democracy that we are protecting? And having that conversation as a very specific and deliberate conversation uh, is something I agree that we need to do urgently in Australia. Mm. I think also your point about, so I have struggled for a long time about uh, to articulate the point of why tech policy is so important. My new um, mantra is that tech policy is important because it's the tech policy rather than the technology that will have a big say in shaping whether we have a world in which we all want to live in or uh, some sort of dystopian future. Um, and the example you just gave there about well, facial recognition or these technologies that are being used in authoritarian regimes and that are also being used in Australia or by large industry businesses, well, the difference around that is not so much, is not necessarily the technologies, it's actually the policies and the checks and balances that we put in place around the use of those technologies. Mm. And and I think that point about uh, it's the policy, technology policy, not the technology that will play a big part in the way that that evolves uh, in, in a positive or negative future for us all. Absolutely. Hi, now seems like a good time for a quick housekeeping message. If you like the pod, shout outs on social media, around the water cooler or at the pub are most welcome. If the platform on which you listen allows, please leave us a star rating or even better, a short review. These reviews really help us to get the word out, so thank you. We have future episodes planned with the eSafety Commissioner and an episode on China and how tech policy is permeating foreign policy and national security. Don't forget to let us know what you want to hear on the pod. Please email us at techpolicydesign at anu.edu.au. But for now, let's get back to our conversation with Justin. So one of the things that you did uh, back in October 2021, which we were, uh, I was really interested to watch when we were doing the research for this podcast, was a workshop that you did with Digital Rights Watch on how to write your own policy submission. Mm. I, I will put a link up to that uh, webinar in the pod notes. I was interested in it for the content, obviously, with some interesting subjects, but also, uh, Justin, your motivation for holding that session. What is it about why you're so passionate about encouraging more people to get involved in something that is usually considered to be pretty boring, like a government consultation process? And what was your motivation behind that session? I have somehow turned into a person who cares about politics and I didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> I think like many people, politics was something that you did every few years when you tried to figure out who to vote for and the rest of the time you were just trying to get on with living your life and you trusted to let other people do it for you. I, I can't remember who, who the philosopher was. I think it might be Plato who said, if, you know, if you're not involved in politics, you're doomed to be ruled by your inferiors. Most of us were 
kind of content with that because it seemed boring and I'd much rather, you know, play with my kids or play computer games and watch TV. Unfortunately, as I think we're all very aware of at the moment, we've seen what happens when you let people just kind of get on with it without any input. And you arrive at the kind of tech policy and the world around us that we see right now. So getting involved is important because it affects what happens to you and things like, what am I going to be allowed to do on the internet? How many hospitals will there be? How good will the schools be? Will I be allowed to bulldoze the trees in my backyard? It can be anything from what your local council lets you do all the way through to how taxation affects the money that you bring home from trying to work your job and how much money you're going to be able to spend on television and computer programs. Will you even be allowed to play that computer game because the Australian Classification Board says that drugs are bad, okay, so no, you're not allowed to, even though Disco Elysium is critically acclaimed? It can actually affect you, so you do need to care about it, even if just a little bit. It doesn't have to consume your life, but you should probably pay a little bit of attention and occasionally get involved. And so that is a beautiful segue into what you think the sort of three hot topic issues that uh, are preoccupying you and that you think uh, Australians should be focused on in this space. And I say that with some trepidation because there is a plethora of proposals on the table at the moment, um, either proposals just passed legislation. So I'm, I appreciate I'm asking you to do an almost impossible task to pick three. Yes, the, three, the top three ways to fix society. <laughs> or break it, you know, either or. Well, if we don't, it's broken. So I'll, I'll pick two and then I'll try to come up with the third one while I, while I riff on the first couple. The, the first two are kind of um, related to each other. So one is privacy. Um, I think that we, we have a, a review of the Privacy Act happening at the moment and I think that people are finally starting to become aware of just how bad it is when Facebook and Google and other ad people spy on you constantly. It's not just the government. It's not the spies and spooks and the cops who are snooping on you. It's, it's, it's people trying to sell you ads. You know, it's your web browser. It's annoying and it can be dangerous. So I think there is a real appetite for stronger privacy protections so that people don't have to think about it all the time. In the same way that I don't have to think about whether my coffee is poisoned when I buy one from a cafe. I don't have to worry about is my bread adulterated with sawdust because A, it's illegal, but it's also been illegal and enforced for so long that people can actually just forget about the days when, yeah, bakers would adulterate their bread with sawdust because sawdust was cheap, flour was expensive, and you could make it way more. We had a case not too many, uh, not too long ago where children's baby milk was adulterated with melamine in, I think it was in China, whereas high quality produce, you know, who thinks about my produce will be poisoned apart from the occasional outbreak of needles in strawberries, which strangely enough elicited an immediate legislative response. Whereas other harm, you know, digital harms from the likes of multi-billion dollar foreign corporations the legislative response is incredibly slow. So I think there's a real opportunity there for us to have some fundamental expectations around privacy as we conduct our lives online. And I think the time is right for people to get involved in that and demand that, well, as we have done for many, many years, things like there should be a tort of serious breach of privacy where instead of having to wait for an underfunded federal agency to maybe get around to regulating it by issuing a stern note and a raised eyebrow in five or ten years, some of us could actually band together and mount a class action against someone like Clearview AI who breach Australian privacy laws. These companies will respond to a financial incentive or rather a financial disincentive to continue breaching our privacy on a fairly routine basis that's the only thing that'll have any effect. And then combined with that is, is surveillance more generally, having that conversation and making clear decisions about how much surveillance is allowable and under what circumstances. 
right now it just sort of happened by accident or because no one said no, or rather we sort of said no, but we didn't do anything about it. So when we have privacy violations by either private corporations who are surveilling us without our knowledge um, or consent, or indeed when authorities overstep the bounds of their alleged authority and start using powers for things that were not intended, where we have mass collection of data on our phone metadata, which is accessed by all and sundry under laws that were never intended for that purpose. So there is this notion that surveillance powers are extraordinary and should we should generally expect that we our communication should be private. We should be able to enjoy a conversation in our own home or with our close friends or with family or indeed someone on the other side of the internet, our friends. We should expect that it is private unless there is a very good reason for it not to be. And that very good reason should be investigation of a, a credible threat of a serious crime. And speaking of scope creep from earlier, the line on what is acceptable for people to snoop on you and to spy on you and to ask you to prove your innocence rather than for authorities to demonstrate proof of actual wrongdoing, I think that's gone way too far. And it's time that we had a reckoning on that and brought it back into line to say, no, in a liberal democracy, privacy is important. The, the right to be innocent until proved guilty is important. The rule of law is important and this should apply to everybody, not just those with the financial resources to defend themselves or indeed to take on other people who've said something publicly that they don't like. And so for those who are listening, both of these topics, privacy and also surveillance, are the subject of ongoing and open inquiries and so they're available for people to provide input in. And I think the idea of adding more agency into people's privacy is an important mm. one that um, some people may like to be served up ads, but actually being able to do that and opt in to that process in a way that allows you to meaningfully control that, I, I think is a, is a key factor and one that we kind of have it as a, you can have it or you can't, and there's no in between. And that's an important point there. And I think with respect to surveillance, what would be interesting as well, and the Richardson Review I know has done this as well, is looking into the areas where these powers were awarded in extraordinary circumstances for legitimate concerns about terrorism or in response to events that happened that were genuinely concerning but are now being used in everyday circumstances and law enforcement in a way that, as you say, if people actually had uh, visibility and awareness of that, how would you respond? And I don't want to prejudge what what the Australian public's response is, but I think we need to have a very open conversation about what those powers are and how they're being used, which we currently are not. So 100% on board with that. Mm. With ad serving, um, actually, it's it's a, a nice segue into the ABC conversation that's currently happening at the moment, which I know is a subject dear to your heart, mm. <laughs> Justin. So for some of us, you may have received, if you are subscribed to ABC, um, notification in your inbox saying that logging in is now, will be compulsory from the 31st of March uh, to access ABC services. Um, Justin, this is something that I believe you did an FOI on back in the middle of last year to ask ABC for the business case around um, why we need needed to have the uh, compulsory login, that it becomes a, a mandatory feature. Could you tell us a little bit about what what motivated you to do that FOI, apart from your love of FOI in general, um, and also what your, what your concern with uh, the approach of the ABC around this compulsory or mandatory logging in? A business case FOI is a technique that I have used with mixed results, I would say, based on the RoboDebt saga. Um, so I'm still awaiting, that's still working through the process and it's been five years now. So for those who don't know, Justin can take considerable uh, responsibility, credit, a fame for the for the robo debt exposures is that the right word i was merely one person from a a broad effort across the community that i i did one little piece of it off in the corner there are a lot of people who were very upset about that process which was as it turned out billions of dollars was stolen from people by the government operating an unlawful scheme and to date 
as far as I'm aware, no minister and no public servant has resigned or been fired as a result of this. And mm. there was a, you know, the largest settlement, class action settlement in Australia's history came about in response to RoboDebt. And mm. that just astounds me that we have become so consequences free in the, the operation of public policy in this country that this kind of thing can happen. And because of that lack of consequences, I believe it's going to happen again. Mm. So, yeah, so the, the, that's a little bit, a bit dark, so lighten the mood. Um, television. Asking for a business case, this is where I can use my experience as a, a tech worker and, and someone who does business cases and, and works with management and does this kind of stuff. So a business case is what you do to justify spending money on the thing that you want to go do inside a corporation or indeed a, a public broadcaster. They generally lay out the case for and against and provide evidence that this is a good thing or not. What's your return on investment going to be? Should we actually do this? If it's such a great idea, surely it would be obvious if we read the business case for ourselves and we would be convinced also. The government agency behind RoboDebt wasn't very keen on that and won't let me see it. Or, and the ABC is similarly not very keen on anybody seeing this business case, which apparently justifies the complete change in how the public broadcaster interacts with its public. It's astounding to me that the public broadcaster is trying to copy its commercial counterparts by surveilling its viewers. It is not something that was even possible under usual broadcast television or radio, but now because it is possible, the ABC, particularly in its recent statements, it seems to think that it has to compete on commercial terms with its commercial counterparts. And that, to me, is more disturbing than almost any other part of it. It's, it's this complete misunderstanding of what the purpose of the ABC is, of what a public broadcaster should be, that means that apparently the future of the ABC is to just become a, a poorly funded version of a commercial cable television station. Like, I don't want Fox News Australia. You know, if I wanted to watch a commercial station, I have plenty of choices. I don't. I want to watch ABC. So to try and play the devil, devil's advocate on that. The devil has plenty of advocates and lots <laughs> of them love working for him for free, but Sure. I know, What's but if more? I don't, but if I don't play the devil's advocate, then I get people saying, "Why didn't you ask them this? Why didn't sure. you ask them that?" So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. Yes. Which is that ABC is under pressure to prove itself as an institution of worth for the Australian public. Now I understand what you're saying is that its its merit and worth is that it is separate from commercial, but the flip side of that is actually they do need to show that their programs are are being watched or to increase the amount. Of of people that are watching and, and to compete um, with, uh, with commercial platforms. And one of the reasons that ABC is saying they're doing this is so that they can track what you're watching and then serve you up ads on Google and Facebook when you visit those platforms. That's, that's sort of how they're framing this, is saying that they want to encourage more awareness. So are you saying that they shouldn't be competing on with the commercial platforms? Um, in which case, then it's really a question about how do we fund ABC. I don't disagree with that. I think we shouldn't be funding. Uh, we shouldn't be asking ABC to compete. Their value is that they are our national broadcaster. But the political reality is they are being asked to do that. And so it's kind of a rock and a hard place, I would imagine. And that's, I think, is a failure of imagination on the part of the ABC and those who buy into that framing. It's, it's not. It's, that's a false choice. So, you know, can you measure the popularity of your programs in ways that don't involve tracking and surveillance of, of your, you know, passive tracking and surveillance of your, of your viewers? So, yes, you absolutely can. It costs a little bit more money. It's a little bit more difficult to do. I would argue with some experience having done this um, on both sides of the fence that it actually provides a better quality result, particularly when you look at how Facebook in particular has bold-faced lied about things like the pivot to video. So the idea that we will somehow get high-quality audience 
information out of people who routinely lie about it compared Mm. to, say, Nielsen ratings. I don't find that to be a credible argument. But there's also the idea that, um, so one of the justifications from the ABC is that they want to be able to push this information to Google and Facebook so that they can show you other things that you might be interested in. Yeah. Like that presupposes, like there are other ways to do cross-promotion. There are other ways to tell people about stuff that is that may interest them. There's also the reality that a lot of these things have no idea what I'm interested in and the algorithms are horrendous at it. Amazon constantly wants me to buy a ninth couch to add to my apparent couch collection if you ever buy one couch there. Like the computers, like this is something that people don't seem to really understand. Computers are not smart. They are dumber than sand. It's this idea that they will somehow magically figure out what you like is goes contrary to all of the evidence that we have about how often they get it wrong and how annoying all of the ads that we already get are. But the the more fundamental challenge with this is that this is the ABC collecting surveillance data on its audience, the people that it apparently cares about, and then sharing that with Facebook and Google, companies that whose existence and corporate ethos and their ethics run completely counter to the idea of a public broadcaster. And that's so that ABC can show you some ads? Really? Yeah. How is this is it a worth it? justification? Now, in terms of should we be, um, could the ABC be collecting some of this information to use for its own internal purposes in a way that is done ethically and with consent, uh, ongoing consent? There are other ways that this could be designed. Absolutely. But that's not what we're being asked for. We're not being given the full choice, the full set of options that could actually be on the, on the table. And in terms of tech policy design, that hasn't actually been consulted on. We've been, we've been given a fait accompli and been told to suck it up. Either comply with what we've told you to do or we'll turn off your ABC. Except for live events, I've noticed. So if you want to watch the ABC live, that's totally fine. They won't actually have that surveillance. But if you watch it on iView, they will. Mm. Please explain. I agree. And certainly from my own perspective, I think it's extremely concerning that ABC is requiring this and that that the rationale that they're putting on the table, in my view, doesn't justify the means that they are implementing. Justin, you have said that This is getting a little dark. Let us move (laughs) and jump into perhaps a more positive frame, which is, is there anything in this space? I hope the answer is yes. Is there anything in this space that gives you pause for hope? Are there positive trends uh, that you are seeing emerging, especially having been involved in this field for for some period of time? There are. There's lots. The fact that people are cottoning on to what's been going on is is tremendous to see. The people who've been doing the wrong thing have pushed their luck way too hard, and now there's blowback. So we are seeing massive increase in people's interest in privacy and what they can do about that, and we are seeing responses from that, including from, you know, large commercial entities like Apple, which talk up their privacy impacts, whether their privacy credentials are as good as they claim, maybe, maybe not, but that's a positive development. There is clearly a, a, enough pressure from customers to want to do better on that front. People understand how important technology is for them in their everyday lives. So, I mean, in one of the things, promoting the use of technology to make people's lives better we have succeeded beyond all imagining. The fact that we've just gone through two years of a global pandemic where a lot of society continued to function largely due to the fact that we have technology and internet communications. We could do schooling at home as much as kids hated it. It was, it was possible. Um, we were able to keep in contact with our friends and family even remotely in ways that were simply not possible even 10 years ago. That's outstanding. The, the uptake of, of technology, I mean, most people have a mobile phone now, so they have access to this, this technology. We, we still have some work to do around digital divide, but a lot of people have access to technology and are far more literate in using it than they used to be. And we're seeing from policymakers from lawmakers and people engaged in the policy sphere 
there is far more willingness to engage with technology and learn about how it actually works and acknowledgement that it's important and valuable in a way that, again, it really wasn't. It was a junior ministry. No one really cared. It was that, you know, technology people wandering off there in the corner. People now understand just how important it is that it deserves serious attention. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, it's something we've been trying to get people to do for 20 years longer to take it seriously. Again, there's still more work to do, but it, it is progress and we are seeing a much better appetite for people to get involved in this, take it seriously, do the work because it's important and recognising that it's not all doom and gloom, that technology actually can be used in ways that makes life better. It's really all about a policy design choice to choose the good side, not the bad side and do it deliberately for once. And I think that that's a, a good example of, uh, I said to you earlier uh, before we started recording, that the, the use of design in Tech Policy Design Centre is a very deliberate term that we have uh, we want to focus on the fact this has to be a design choice by politicians, by civil society, um, by our listeners to engage in these conversations. I've heard you say before, Justin, that it's it's okay to imagine the world in a different way. So uh, the last question I want to put to you uh, is around what if you are imagining not the work of EFA being done, because I, I imagine this is the work will never be done, but if you have achieved your key goals, what does the world look like? Uh, can you paint a picture? Because we we it's so easy to focus on the dystopian vision. It's actually quite difficult or rare to hear not the utopian vision, but a world that we have shaped in a positive way articulated. I'm a fan of the work of Stafford Beer and uh, cyberneticians, mm-hmm. particularly encapsulated in the, in the phrase, the purpose of a system is what it does. Mm. One measure of success for me is that people have an awareness of the outcomes of policy and actually look at what really happened and acknowledge that and then make changes based on the outcome rather than being bogged down in good intentions and pretending that, oh, no, we, well, we meant well, and then forgetting about going back and checking to see what actually happened afterwards because that's not science. Mm. Progress happens when we, we test something, we see if it worked, and then if it doesn't, we change it rather than getting welded to something. It's like, well, you know, we did it the wrong way and we're stuck with it now. It's like, no, we're not. It's a choice. We can make a new one. We can change our minds and do it a different way. Um, There is no reason it has to be exactly this way. Often people imagine constraints that aren't there. So I think if we could take some of the the tech optimism that people have often had and this, this idea that we can use technology to make people's lives better, and be listening to the people who it actually affects rather than, again, I mean, here I am sitting on a podcast, a rich white dude talking about tech policy stuff, when we have lots of young black women talking about tech policy, when we have poor people involved in the design, and when their lives are made measurably better by the way technology is used, that's the kind of world I imagine. And you mentioned, you know, when it's done is that I won't have to worry about it anymore because we will have lots of people who are really good at this doing the work together so that no one of us has to do everything. It'll be much easier because everyone will be involved in it. We'll all be doing it the right way more often than we do it the wrong way. So it'll actually get a lot easier. And we'll be able to have the magical vision of like the the future past of the 1950s where you can just um, talk to your phone and it will understand you and won't mistake your accent for some something else and go, oh, no, you're Australian, I can't possibly understand you. And it will be able to turn my lights on all the time and I won't have to worry about either police or cyber criminals breaking into my house and taking control of my light bulbs where I don't have to worry that they'll be end of life and won't actually support the latest version of the operating system on my phone, where I can repair it myself if I so choose, or pay someone else to come and fix my house because something has changed, where I can rip it open the way I can physical things and attempt to change it or fix it or 
program it myself to do something that only five other people care about and it's not really commercially viable to do, but it's important to me so I can make it my own. We can help one another to make good use of technology and we don't have to wait for some slightly disinterested billionaire to decide that, well, rather than going to space today, I might actually you know, do something for the people here on this planet. That's the kind of world I'd, I'd like to live in where every interaction I have with technology is either invisible or makes me happy rather than sad. And right now, there are too many printers and everyone knows there's too many printers and too much DNS. So if we can manage to fix DNS and printers, I think that will make the world a much better place. Well, I like that as a measure, using technology that makes you feel happy, not sad. That is a lovely note to end on. I, I also love this concept that it's something that that everybody uh, pays attention to and everyone helps to shape, uh, that it's something that not just one one person or particular groups of individuals. And, and I hope that this podcast is helping to encourage more people, regardless of your views, but to get involved in the conversation. And so as a final piece, because I think I said the last question was the final question, <laughs> the uh, any uh, particular resources, books, Twitter accounts, you know, things that you would recommend that people uh, look up or get involved and as a way to sort of encourage them to stay involved in the conversation? There is so much. I, I will bug a few books that I've read that I think are, are particularly good. So there's some, some books. Unfortunately, they're, they're a bit of a dystopian bent, but they do explain what it could be like if we change things. So Programmed Inequality, How Britain Discarded Women Technologists and Lost Its Edge in Computing by Ma Hicks is excellent. Algorithms of Impression. How Search Engines Reinforce Racism by Sophia Umoja Noble is excellent. Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy by Cathy O'Neill. Slightly more positive in a variety of ways. Future Histories by Lizzie O'Leary. What Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine and the Paris Commune can teach us about digital technology. Those are some books. If you're online, there's heaps of stuff on Twitter. Swift on Security is excellent for a, a mixed bag of cyber things um, you'll learn lots from just following them but people who just take photos and silly memes and stuff that makes you laugh go and embrace a lot of that don't worry so much about the dystopian side of things go and enjoy the technology and remember why it's great and then find a little corner of the world that you think you could make a little bit better and just deal with that bit you don't have to solve everything just help a bit and on that note, thank you very, very much, Justin, for the little bit, which is a big bit that you do and that uh, EFA do. And thank you for giving us the time for this conversation today. You're very welcome. Talking Tech Policy is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research support. You can follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Tech Policy Design Centre. You can follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Tech Policy Design or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thank you for listening and please do rate and leave us a review.